The title of this sermon is Our Creative God Communicates His Glory. And the question is, how does he do that? But before I get there, let me uh, share a little bit about how this sermon came to be, because it was different than normal. Um, I had read the Psalm 19. I had meditated and prayed on it for days, even multiple weeks. And I had scribbled notes of the direction I thought I'd take to deliver what I think are the key thoughts. I considered how to break it up into manageable pieces. And finally, I opened up the computer program Word in my Mac computer to start typing. And when I open a new document in my Mac, I have to click a button labeled Create. And up pops a blank page. And that became my aha moment. Because I thought, am I really going to create something? I suppose by the world's definition, the answer would be yes. I'm, I'm going to create something that we hadn't seen before or heard before. Um, but I don't know that that's really creating something. And our summer series is entitled uh, Psalms, or Creative Psalms, uh, The Creative Work of God. And creation is something our creative God spoke into existence from nothing. I'm talking about the creation of Genesis 1. And people are often described as creative. So what's going on? Some people are more creative than others. When I think of creative people, I think of fiction writers. Uh, I think of poets, of inventors. I think of my grandson, Zach, when he was a little boy, explaining how the hall runner ended up on the dining room table. He's very creative. Yeah. In comparing creative people to creative God, well, there is no comparison. I can accept the world's view of creative regarding people, but just like me creating a Word document, these creative people are not creating something from nothing. People use tools that they create with. Um, da Vinci was mentioned by Rick Oliver a couple weeks ago. And, you know, he painted the Mona Lisa and captured these expressions that are just, we're in awe of as we stare at it. And that's considered creative. Science fiction author, author imagines new ideas and creates his novel. But he builds his images on what already exists or their ideas in his head of things that he has not yet seen, but he's imagined. He hasn't made them real yet. And he describes an image in his mind that, well, it just doesn't exist. That's imaginative, but it's not really creative. And it's as though all of these people are assemblers of things that are already created. But when we speak of our God being creative... We speak of him not assembling things, but truly creating something from nothing. Uh, Tim and I were talking this morning, and the, the image of a rainbow came to Tim's mind. And God told us why he created that rainbow. So we have his version of, this is a reminder that I'm never going to flood you guys again. And we get to see in his creative nature. We get to see his creation that talks to us. It means something. It has a point. 
So furthermore, what is created must have a purpose or there'd be little point in creating it. And that's true with man being creative or God. There's always a point to it. And what we'll see in looking at the first half of Psalm 19 is the purpose of what God spoke into existence. Some will think creation's purpose was to serve man, to sustain his existence, because it does do that. Others might think creation's purpose was to serve itself, which I think is very close to not having a purpose at all. That would be like saying an orange exists to be an orange. That's not the point of the orange. What something is, is different than its intended purpose. I believe the purpose of creation, as shown in Psalm 19, is this. God's purpose for his creation is for us to know his glory. Let me say it again. God's purpose for his creation is for us to know his glory. Creation glorifies God, and we witness it. So I invite you to stand for the reading of just the first half of Psalm 19, first six verses. It's written to the choir master. It's a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man run its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Lord God, we look at your creation, we're awed, and we pray that as we're looking at Psalm 19 this morning, we'll know more about you. There's much to know about your creation, but we want to know about you, Lord. And since your, nature, your creation reveals your nature, we pray that that revelation would come to us through your spirit to our hearts and minds. Lord, I pray for an errorless version of a sermon. I know that it won't be, but I know that your spirit can translate the, the right and the wrong and make it all right in the hearts of the hearers. So do that for us this morning. Give us a reason to walk away and, and remember something from this psalm. What it will be will be by your choice and your will, but let it be done, Lord. In the name of Jesus, amen. So speaking to the technical side of this psalm, <clears throat> we're introduced to the psalmist being to the choir master and the author being David. Now, I've read some commentaries that want to lay claim that the choir master, in fact, could be God himself. And that would mean that David's writing the psalm to God. I'm not in that camp. I've also <laughs> read that 
it could be uh, truly in David's court a choir master or song leaders. There's two of them that are mentioned in First Chronicles. Uh, it's Heman and Asaph. And I'll, I'm about to throw some verses at you. Maybe you jot them down, look them up later, and kind of get a feel for, yeah, we're introduced to David's court and who a choir master might be. So it's First Chronicles uh, verses 6, 33, chapter 16, verses 5 and 7, or 5 through 7, and chapter 25, verse 6. These people will be specified by name as being uh, song leaders in David's court. The poetry style of the psalm, and know that psalms are songs, and songs don't have to be poetry, but they are in this case, and a lot of psalms are. Uh, but the style is called seconding sequence and synonymous parallelism. It's a mouthful. But what it means is this, that there is one line that has two parts and they're connected. For example, verse 1, the first part is the heavens declare the glory of God. And then the second connected part says pretty close to the same thing. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So do you see the parallels of, say, declare and proclaim? They're, they're kind of saying the same thing. Not exactly, but close. So we get connecting words and connecting thoughts. And while similar, they're intended to not be exact. One of them will typically have a larger or more impactful meaning. We'll take that declare and proclaim. Declare is indeed an announcement, usually of facts, but proclaim brings with it a sense of announcing important news. So it ramps it up a little bit, even though it's trying to say pretty much the same thing. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote, Speaking of this Psalm 19, I take this to be the greatest poem in this altar and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Now, I don't know if Lewis knew how to read the original Hebrew, and if not, probably looking at King James' Bible, um, the, the original rhyme and rhythm would be lost. Can't quite match it because it's not quite the same language. And fortunately, translators, or I read ESV, um, the translators take great care and study these things and understand the poetry style to try and maintain it in the translation. It brings a whole level of complication to translating the Bible into other languages. You know, when I think about other languages, I, I was with John Hulet, which about 10 of us were with him for lunch yesterday. And he gave us a video, and I'll just point you to the website. It's, it's a little too long to bring it into the service. But a lot of the video has Japanese-speaking people, and then it's translated into words or subtitles to it. So you might want to check that out on the church website. I don't know if it's there right now. We're going to try and put it up today. But I just got to say, bless Marilyn Escher for the work that she's done with Wolof Bible. She's one of the people that have taken this awesome responsibility of translating not just a language, but the intention of God. It's, it, it makes my skin tingle. That's it. And if any of you want to see this, 
I'm going to put it on the sound stage um, rail. It's the Bible in the Wallace language. It's something we've been praying as a church for for a very long time and praying for Maryland specifically to help get this done. So it's, it's really fantastic. And if you know some of the Bible, you'll, you'll flip through uh, 2 Thessalonic 3. 2 Thessalonians, I'll bet. You know. Can't really say I see Timothy. is probably Timothy. Uh, it, it's, it's great. You should take a look at it. Um, especially knowing that your prayers were answered. And I'm sure a lot of other people praying the same thing, but collectively our prayers for Marilyn Esher and her work were answered and it's now printed. One big thing that's not lost in the translations, even though you can't really get the rhyme and rhythm of the, the language, and it's really the point of me taking the time to explain the technical side, but what's not lost is this style of poetry that repeats thoughts does two key things in, in my mind and heart. First, it clarifies things. Uh, it, it, if you get to see something twice, it's like, okay, I told you to you this way and you didn't quite get me, but if I tell you to it again, and we're on the same subject, then okay, now you're bringing some clarity to me. So we, he the Lord, inspired by the Bible, will somewhat translate it for us, to us. The second thing is, it's highly technical, so you have to read it slowly. And I think the intention of the Psalms is to take little tiny bites and then just meditate on those and pray on those. It's, it's different than you know, if you're reading through Second Kings or something and you've got a storyline then you're piecing together the entire story, here you have an opportunity to, to just narrow down to, to one line of the Bible, read it two ways, and see what's he really talking about. So let's look at the meat of the, of the psalm, of what David is saying. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. And when you read those two parts together as belonging together in parallel, we get the impression that David is not referring to a spiritual heaven, you know, the place where Jesus is on his throne, the place where God resides. He's talking about the sky, the night sky and the day sky, but that's the heavens above. He's talking about the sky that was created in Genesis 1. In fact, all of the first six verses should bring the reader's mind to the creation spoken of in Genesis. So David looked to the heavens, the sky above, and saw the glory of God. And he is not the only one. Paul, in Romans 1.20, he also looks to the sky and he sees in creation something about God. And it says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things made. Well, I don't think it's so invisible if we can actually look up and see it. So I don't know where the invisible part comes from. But definitely we can see that creation was speaking to Paul. 
In verse 2, day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So just what is David and Paul in Romans seeing that is so revealing? Paul defines what he is seeing, this eternal power and divine nature, but that's what he's seeing. What is he looking at? I mean, that's how he's interpreting it, but what's he actually looking at to be able to see power and divinity in, in the witness of creation? Well, we can start guessing based on the things we see. They, they're seeing uh, the size of the sky, how it stretches horizon to horizon. It's massive. So is God. They're seeing clouds that form that offer relief from the, hun- the heat of the sun. They're seeing a compassionate God. They see stars that are not random but are set in place. Job references constellations. Thank you, Abby, for Bible Adventure Week and mentioning that. Um, in chapter 9 of Job, uh, he's using these constellations in his argument of God's strength and sovereignty. When David looked up at night, he would see the Milky Way as a band of stars so clustered that the light from each star battling each other just leaves an appearance of a, a milky one-on kind of a light. Something I've noticed over my years, and there's a lot of them, a lot of birthdays now, um, the sky's become polluted. And it's not the kind of polluted that's dirty. It's, it's upward light. And it really encumbers the view of what that sky looks like. It doesn't mean the sky's not there. It's just harder to see it. Tim is a camper, and he mentioned it again this morning, how, how we get to just be in awe of God's creation. And one of the things when you go camping is the night sky. It's incredible because you don't have that upward light polluting the image. What you really get to see are the stars and the moon and the brightness of it all against a very deep black background. Imagine if God did not create stars, we would be very confused to look up if he didn't create stars and the moon and, and just have a nothing but blackness. That, that wouldn't really be saying anything. It's like going into a room and turning off the lights. There's just nothing to see. How badly do we need stars? I don't know. We'll let scientists answer that. But from a spiritual side, we need to see this revelation of God. We need to be impressed by the things that God has done. And we owe it to our youth to get them out of the cities and into the wilderness to where they can gaze at the awesomeness of God and be impressed by His glory. Take them out to the beach. You know, I remember when I was writing this uh, John Denver show. Does anybody remember there used to be a John Denver show on TV? Yeah, well, he introduced a song that he was about to sing. It was called Shanghai Breezes. And he wrote it with his wife in mind. He was in Shanghai, and his wife was home in wherever they lived. I don't know. And he was missing her. And he was looking up at the moon, realizing, you know, this is the same moon she's looking at. So he connected with her 
through God's creation, through the created moon. And it sort of speaks to how creation transcends distance. That my brother lives in Texas, I'm here. But we have a combined or, or the same view to look up and be and admire God. And, and that's somewhat of what John Denver was talking about. The lines are, Shanghai breezes, I'm not singing it. Shanghai breezes, soft and gentle, remind me of your tenderness. And the moon and the stars are the same ones you see. It's the same old sun up in the sky. So it just gets to look at the glory of God and realize somebody else, 6,000 miles away, is doing the same thing. But when you think about it, while it transcends distance, God's glory, shown in creation, transcends time. I'm looking at the same moon and stars that my ancestors did, that David did, that Adam and Eve did. It's a pretty important concept when you really, it's not just that these are really old stars and planets and moons and suns and clouds. It's that God created them for all to see of all time. There's probably hundreds and thousands of other examples of God's glory that could be seen by gazing in the heavens. But we do have some limited time. But I do want to comment that Science has been trying to understand the heavens, kind of like we pray without ceasing. And, and I think that's a wonderful thing. They may have some strange motives, but, but they're looking, they're searching. It's like, what? how can we explain this thing that you and I will call creation? When Rick Oliver told us about the, the aviator was using science to understand the wonders of the the peregrine falcon. God was more glorified by the way science observed what was happening than any attempt by people to use science to deny God's glory. So don't, don't, be, don't be bad on scientists. Scientists are good things, are good people. They, they try to explain the glory of God. They try to understand it. Uh, they come to different conclusions, perhaps, yes, and you can go ahead and argue the conclusions, but you can't really argue what they're looking at. Verses 3 through the first half of verse 4 says, There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. There, the skies, their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Creation has a voice, and all mankind hears it. This voice is understood by all. It needs no interpreter. Genesis 11, Genesis 11 records that the whole earth had one language and the same words. Everybody spoke the same language. This is a story of Babel. Um, and God saw what the people were doing with this combined knowledge, and they built this great city, and they were trying to build this great tower to the heavens. And God said, let us 
which is interesting, let us, so it's a plural God, and didn't mention, hey, Jesus, why don't you and I go down there? But this Trinity, God we know, says, let us go down and basically see what they're up to. And for our protection, he confused the language. He saw that we were able to do a lot of things and not necessarily all of them good. And I don't know what was going to come of this um, tower uh, that God knew wasn't going to be a great idea. I don't know exactly what part of it wasn't a great idea, but he decided, I'm going to confuse the language so they can't work together, and I'm going to spread these people uh, across the, the world, and, and therefore you've got Japanese speaking and Chinese speaking and uh, the different languages, Wolof speaking, English, um, but it's not all the same. But the language David's talking about is understood by all. That's what it says. And that's not to say that what they hear and understand they're agreeing with. Many don't. But they all hear it. Spurgeon wrote regarding these first six verses that God the Holy Ghost must illuminate us or the sons in the Milky Way never will. So therefore we have creation, we have God speaking through it, showing us his character and nature, but not all are going to understand it. Those with the Holy Spirit can Moving on, the last half of verse 4 and, and into verse 6. David stays on the, the day and night parallel and the inescapable vastness of the language of creation with his metaphor of a tent for the sun. The sun being in the tent would be the night sky and out of the tent, the day sky. We know the tent as the rotation of the earth. I mean, the sun's pretty much staying here we're spinning around, comes morning, we can see the sun all through the day, it keeps on spinning, and eventually it's out of our view, we're on the other side, uh, through the night, and then into the day the next morning. How romantic is that? But the way David says it, it is. And it, it's, it's just beautiful. Um, the imagery says twice the same thing. It's the image of a bridegroom leaving his chamber to go off and get married and like a strong man running its course with joy. It says the same thing twice. It's, it's saying, well, not just saying, if I had to come up with an unstoppable force, I'd be hard-pressed to come up with something more eager to get rolling than a groom heading to the marriage of his waiting bride. That's an exciting thing. I can't wait. Everything's gonna, it's been planned. It's been put in order. It's time to go, and it just goes. The sun rising in the morning. It's not going to stop it. You're not going to stop that groom from making it to his marriage. The strong runner who runs with joy. When I first read Strongman, I'm thinking of a Schwarzenegger type. But then when I realized he's a strong runner that he's talking about, and, and well, in my Dave Waddle came to mind, um, but he was a, a distance runner who just seemed to run effortlessly, and at any distance, he just wasn't going to get tired. 
And that's the sun. It's, it's not going to have to pause, take a breath or anything. It is going to run its course for sure. Verse 6 ends the, the section with, there is nothing hidden from its heat. That'd be the sun. Thus completing the parallel language of verse 4, that they're words to the end of the world. So the, the words, the language of creation, it, it's going to be spoken to every nook and cranny across the expanse of the earth. It also makes a pretty good metaphor um, to use the sun when describing God in that, you know, its heat is intense. It's ever-present. It surrounds everything. And is that not what God's glory does? Definitely intense, definitely ever-present, and definitely everywhere. You know, allow me to also comment that the glory of the night and day, uh, we might be able to, I can, um, move these verses to a spiritual direction and think of the night sky as being the law and the, the day sky, the strength of the sun and that sort, as being the grace of the gospel. Jesus, if you want to go there. It's an unstoppable gospel. It's unstoppable sun. That sun is going to rise and set. There is no question about it. And that's what you could say about the strength of Jesus' salvation to believers. You know, I was talking to one of my daughters. She's a, she was an English major. She's well out of that. Um, was in the school system as well teacher and then vice principal principal for a good long time, but is has retired from that. And she sent me a text, and when she was asking, we had this text conversation. She asked me if I had read *The Great Divorce* by C.S. Lewis. And it was on her son's reading list, summer reading list, so she picked it up and read it, and she loved it, which is great. Um, and in this text conversation, I let her know that I was working on my sermon. I was going to quote C.S. Lewis, the, the part about this being the greatest poem he's ever seen. Um, I gave her a short outline of where I would go with the passage, and um, she commented after agreeing that, yeah, it sounds like you're going in the right direction, Dad, and then finished it, and I loved the way she did, and I quote, she finished it with a message of hope, no? Well, Lindsay, with a message of hope, yes. If our hope were in anything less than the creator of creation, we would be left disappointed because nobody else can offer the hope than the creator. Our hope is perfected in the perfect one. Is it impossible for God who displays his glory in his creation to perfect us? It's not at all. It's not impossible. In fact, I would even think it is impossible for that God not to be able. So let's return to Paul's reference of creation in Romans. This time Romans 18, or 
chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. If you want to turn there, I'll, I'll give you a moment. It's not real long. But Romans 8, verses 18 through 25, speaking of the hope and how it relates to creation. And it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing. Creation has an emotion, not just a voice. For creation, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning, there's that voice again, together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the spirits, or of the spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for its adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We will never match God's glory, but one day we will be glorified. So let's pray. Lord God, creative one, we praise you for your glory, a glory witnessed in our view of the heavens. Your glory is even greater than creation can speak to. We do wait eagerly and with patience to the full revelation of your glory. Our hope is not in the created, but in the creator. Until that full revelation, we will worship you as the Spirit leads us. We are, thank you. We, we are thankful for your redemptive plan created through your son Jesus from your love of us. And we pray we would not disappoint you with unrepented sin. Protect us from sin. And please us with your precepts. Amen.